This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. After experiencing trauma, I went to therapy and my therapist guided me through a difficult time in my life. They helped me understand what was happening and provided me with tools to cope and find my own strength and resilience. Their experience and compassion were invaluable and enabled me to rebuild my life and move forward. I strongly believe in the power of therapy to help people through difficult times. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who is trained to listen and give you helpful, unbiased advice. First, you go to their site. You can use my link, betterhelp.com resilience. You answer a few questions and BetterHelp will match you to a professional who has years of experience helping people with struggles just like yours. Let BetterHelp connect you to a therapist who can support you, all from the comfort of your own home. Visit betterhelp.com slash resilience or choose podcast, then notes on resilience during sign up and enjoy a special discount on your first month. Hello, and welcome to Notes on Resilience. I'm your host, Manya Chilinski. My guest today is Carrie Speranza. She is an emergency manager and she is very involved with the International Association of Emergency Managers and their program, IAEM Stronger Stories. We talk about the importance of the support of our systems and institutions when it comes to resiliency, how to be aware and prepared, but not living in fear, and the importance of stories and how much telling our stories matters for our resiliency. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Hi, Carrie. I'm so excited to be talking to you today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Well, let's see how excited you are after the first question. (laughs) So before we get into who you are and why we are talking, I would love to know if you could have a superpower, what would it be? I love that question. So I think for folks that know me, uh, there's two sides to carry, right? So there's the practical realist who can sometimes be cynical. Mm-hmm. And then there is the the visionary and the strategist. And so part of me says, I would love to teleport because how much more efficient would my life be if I never had to plan on getting anywhere? Yes. And then the other part of me is like, well, I would love to be able to tap into my Zen master and my brain at a moment's notice because life is so frantic. Things happen very stressful. You know, you have a job, you got kids emergencies happen, I would love to be able to tap into my brain at any moment and say, find your peace, find your peace, find your peace. (laughs) And actually find it like that, right? (laughs) And it would actually work for me. So I would like to have two superpowers. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll put it on the list. (laughs) Thank you. The teleportation or some version of that is very popular. I'm on board with that too. I actually do enjoy the act of traveling, like getting on a plane, these trains I love, but there are times when I just want to be there. Like, I mean, if I'm taking my son to baseball, I would just like to be there. Why do I have to get in the car and go be in traffic? You know, (laughs) (laughs) let's get the game started. Exactly. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that. And now let's find out a little bit about who you are. So Who are you and what do you do? And how is it that you are in a place to be thinking about trauma and resilience? So what do I do? Well, my paid nine to five, I am an emergency manager. So I'm a classically trained emergency manager. And for folks who might not be familiar with that, 
the thing I like to say is we help prepare people for potentially the worst day of their lives, right? So it could be either a a 9-11 or a Hurricane Katrina or something. And we work with government entities and private sector, and we help prepare them for having to respond and recover to incidents like that. So that that's that's my paid job, nine to five. I'm also pretty heavily involved in associations work through um, the International Association of Emergency Managers. And that's primarily how and why I'm here today talking to you about mental health. Mm-hmm. Though it was my job that unfortunately put me in, a, <laughs> in an experience where I went through something pretty traumatic and it, it affected me for a very long time. And it took me several months, almost six or seven months to fully process what had happened. But I realized once I was able to tell my story, it sort of lifted this weight off of my chest and I, was, I wasn't suffocated anymore. And I could finally process what had happened and, and really put names to the thoughts and the feelings and the emotions that I had had around the experience. And so in the association that I'm a member, I have been bringing that to the association that's like a a peer support type model, a mental health program called I Am Stronger Stories Mm -hmm. that we've started. Uh, And it's really just modeled off of that, helping to get folks to get to a comfortable place if they're ready to tell their story, either out loud or even in writing. It can be done anonymously uh, just to help folks, you know, start processing and get back on that mental health journey. Wow. That's You do great work. That's what I want to say here. I mean, emergency managers are such an important piece of the cog of of a response to an emergency. I think you are the team that maybe the public doesn't think about very often because, you know, we see the first responders, we see the municipal leaders on the press conferences, and your work is behind the scenes and in advance to prep them for all of this. So first off, I just want to say thank you for the work that you do. And we have talked about the Stronger Stories concepts, and it's just so powerful to enable people to share their stories. So I love that you're doing that with um, emergency managers. And as I think you experienced and as I have experienced, a lot of value in sharing the story. There's something about... I don't know if it's that we're working through it in our heads as we're talking about it, or we're processing the emotions at the same time, or there's something about the repetition. Um, I personally find that kind of storytelling very valuable. It's very cathartic. Absolutely. You are correct. So how has it been received in the organization? Is it something that kind of was running straight out of the box or that's a massively mixed metaphor, or is it something that took a little time to gather momentum? So I would say probably a little bit of both, right? Mm -hmm. The reality of it is it's March right now. And I started this in August of last year. (laughs) And and so we're we're six or seven months into this. And I've already been at conferences talking about it and have been published about it. So I would say it's, it's running. Yes. And there have been so many of my colleagues, both members and not members of the association, who have really taken to this idea because there's a lack of support in the industry. Let's just be frank about it. Um, they've really taken to the idea. And then there have, which I expected there were and are some folks who are a little bit more hesitant and shy to share their story because it's a, it's a moment of vulnerability. Perhaps they're just not ready to share it yet. Some, some folks go through some pretty traumatic experiences. And, and so I was, I am ready for that pushback, at least a little bit or hesitancy. But the beautiful part about telling a story is whether or not you're telling the story or you're listening to the story you can find yourself in it. And for those folks that might 
not be ready to talk about what had happened to them or to process their feelings and thoughts. And they just want to push it down more yes. for a bit longer. My hope is that they don't feel alone in listening to or reading some of these stories. If I can get them to know that and to feel that and to think that, then I'm okay with them perhaps not sharing their story just yet. Yes. I think you know this personally as I do, that it's so valuable to recognize yes, this is happening to me and it's horrible, but I'm not the only one. There's something about that sense of community, no matter how small that community may be, that is, I'm not sure comforting is the right word, but it's validating to know we're not alone. So when you're talking about having people share their stories, that is something, you know, being able to share your story and talk about it is one piece that maybe is part of someone's resiliency, their traits of resiliency. Not everybody wants to share their story, but some people do. But what do you think about the word resiliency or the concept of resiliency? I'm really torn on it, actually. So in in emergency management, resilience has been the topic du jour for eight to 10 years now. We talk about resilient communities, resilient infrastructure, resilient people, And I know what it means from a a practitioner standpoint to make something more resilient to withstand the next big thing. From a personal standpoint, I have a love-hate relationship with the word (laughs) resilience and how people or what people think about using it, right? And what it means to them, I think that there's sort of a misunderstanding or maybe it's just my own misunderstanding, which could be the truth. Um, For me, you know, personal resilience I've heard the rubber band analogy. I've heard the tree blowing in the wind and the branches not breaking analogy. And for me, I, I listen to those and I think that's survival. That that that's just survival. They survived that specific instance. And for me, when I think about resilience, you're absolutely right about the storytelling. It's whatever happens to you, however long it takes for you to be able to process the emotions, the thoughts. If you can walk away from an experience and say, you've learned something, or you're going to act differently, or you're going to think differently, or you're going to apply something differently in the future to a a situation that might occur. That to me is resilient. That to me is resilience. I know your personal story. I'm sure that from that situation, you took away an opportunity to probably look at big crowds differently when you're in an area, when you're going to concerts or you're going to things like that, right? Looking for the exits in a different way, looking for first responders differently. That's all signs and signals of being resilient, taking something from the experience and learning from it. Yeah, it is interesting. Um, I know a lot of a lot of survivors of different events now through various organizations that I'm part of. And it's almost a fight between all of us to be the person whose back is to the wall so that we can see the room. (laughs) 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 Exactly. It's sad to have to say, but it's absolutely true. You're right. And I, I just have to throw this in because I was giving a presentation at an event with a significant percentage of the audience was first responders. And it was theater style seating with a big set of seats in the middle and two rows, two aisles that people could come down. And all of the first responders were in seats one or two in from the aisle. <laughs> They've learned the hard way. You need to be closest to the exit and you need to be able to get out fast. Exactly. Exactly. Signs of resilience. <laughs> yes. I like thinking about it that way. So I'm glad you said that. So we've talked a little bit now about personal resilience and the things that we might do 
or that we might learn that contribute to our resilience. But how do you think about the role of our systems and our institutions in helping people heal from trauma and in supporting individual resiliency? It's actually the biggest reason why I decided to get involved with I Am Stronger Stories, because I personally experienced a lack of organization and systemic or systems support for Mm -hmm. mental health issues. At least in the field of emergency management, we are not categorized as first responders. And so what that means is even though we are most of the time out there in the thick of it with people, uh, we're not provided that same post-incident counseling that most first responders are. And in my specific experience, what I've seen is you get that generic emergency or employee assistance program phone number and email, and that is the extent of the support that you would get in emergency management. And in my opinion, that's not going to cut it anymore, right? The the world is so fast-paced. It's so evolving. The threat landscape is so much more sophisticated and things are happening in ways and in places that we never anticipated before. You can't just give somebody a phone number and say, you need help, call. We need to have actual programs in place. We need our employees and our, our colleagues and our friends to know that that they too matter. Their stories matter. And if and when they actually need help, it's more than just a phone number and a generic email address. And here are some things and some places and some resources and people that we can talk to to help you. So I feel very strongly about that because it was something that's and still is lacking within the industry itself. I believe that organizations and systems play the most prominent role, I think, in, in helping the workforce be more resilient. Yeah. So at the risk of opening up a can of worms or putting you in a position where you can't say anything. Why do you think that emergency managers, given what you guys do, are not classified as, as first responders? And or why are we not able to get the support for the emergency managers as well, given the critical role you play in the aftermath of disaster and tragedy? Yeah, I think primarily it's because folks don't necessarily notice that we are there on the scene. And most of the time we are when there's a, of course, when there's a disaster, but even when there's, you know, a building fire or a large scale emergency within an urban area, your emergency managers are there on scene and they're seeing things and they're hearing things and they're smelling things and they're experiencing the same things as everybody else. But primarily our role is the coordination mechanism, coordination, communication, collaboration within an emergency operations center. And I think from that definition alone, most people place us away from the incident scene and away from the critical incident. And that's just not the case. Because even when you're in the EOC, you're seeing video streams, you're listening to the radio traffic, you're watching social media up on television. I mean, we're, we're paying attention just like everybody else. And so vicarious trauma is a thing, right? Yes. <laughs> but I think because we're not the ones going into the building, we're not the ones initially helping the survivor we're not seen as that first responder. And I I don't know if we need to be categorized as a first responder. I believe that we experience a lot of the same things. And so we need the same post-incident resources. Right, right. And I imagine that there might be listeners who are first responders or no first responders who are in organizations where maybe they're not even getting the kind of support that is necessary. So I feel like you start thinking about it, it just gets to be this The problem just gets to be bigger and bigger. And we realize, I think our systems and our institutions, I'm just using that so broadly, 
but just don't seem to be set up to really appreciate the mental health impacts of almost anything we deal with on a daily basis. You are 100% correct on that. Absolutely. Even just being working parents, right? Yeah. Even something as simple as that. Yeah. The the caregiving responsibility, taking care of kids, taking care of elderly family members. Mm -hmm. I know organizations that struggle with how to be supportive. And, you know, your point about the employee assistance program and getting a phone number to call. And it is wonderful that there are places that you can call. I remember after the bombing, somebody had put a packet of information in my hand and I came home and was reading it. And it was a list of trauma counselors. I think there were some other other pages with other information. And I knew I needed help, but I couldn't really figure out what I was supposed to do with the information on the page. And I'm, I did end up getting help and I'm grateful that I was given that packet of information. But I remember distinctly sitting actually in the same spot where I am right now, looking at this paper thinking, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. So especially early on in a trauma, a resource that is, is asking a person to reach out can be less effective. Because you are often your, I don't want to say weak, but you are often your weakest Mm -hmm. in the aftermath of an incident like that. So to then put the onus on the survivor to say, and now I need you to go do this. Right. Isn't, isn't quite fair. (laughs) (laughs) I know life's not fair, but it is probably the unfairest. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So yeah, I'm I'm sorry that you had to go through that. Well, you know, I ended up eventually connecting with somebody on that list and and got the help that I needed. But there was quite the hiccup where my brain just didn't quite know what to do. So if you're talking about that, if we're saying putting the onus on the person when they're at their most vulnerable is a challenge, what is a way to, to plan ahead to prevent maybe putting as much onto the shoulders of the people who are experiencing the trauma? I think your organization's and your systems have to be proactive, they must come knocking on the door. You can't expect somebody who has just gone through something and probably wants to hide from it, probably is experiencing negative coping mechanisms from that, right? Doesn't want to associate with the experience that they just went through. Um, You can't expect them to want to voluntarily then come and talk about it and deal with it. The organizations must have resources ready to go, ready to call them, come to their house. And even if they're not ready, just let them know periodically that you're there. Mm-hmm. You're there. You can just sit with them. If they just want to sit and be quiet, you can sit and be quiet, <laughs> but you can't wait for the survivor to reach out anymore. Organizations must do more to find resources that proactively reach out to the folks that have been um, experiencing trauma. Yeah. I can think of so many instances, just in my own experience and the, the folks that I know where you know, we can answer a question if you ask, and I can make a decision if you say something to me, but I'm not able to do the outreach and say, this is what I need, or this is what would be helpful. And yeah. So what would you say is an important lessons about resilience that you have learned, you know, either through your own experiences with trauma or through your work as an emergency manager or with IAM? Most important lessons for resilience. That is a fantastic question. For me personally, it's planning and preparing as much as you can. I understand that life is going to throw things at you that you're unexpected. You know, you don't really know how to react to that. But I think if you can plan and prepare ahead of time, 
you are that much more better to cope with things on the back end. Mm-hmm. And I think from an emergency management perspective, you know, dealing with the communities as I do across the country, it's it's the same thing. You have to know your risk. You have to know your vulnerability. You have to know where you live, where you work, the people around you. You have to pay attention and you have to understand how those things are interconnected and what that might mean for you, your safety, for your family, for your community. So for me, you know, knowledge is power. And I think when it comes to the individual and an emergency management for communities, knowing makes all the difference. Yeah. Now, as you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, as an individual, my experience is a little bit different, but take me back 10 years ago and and ask me this question. We as individuals don't want to think about risk and we don't want to think about the way that we are vulnerable. And when we see something on the news that reveals how vulnerable we all are, whether it's a tornado or a uh, mass violence that we witness on the news, we really are quick to categorize that as something other that couldn't happen to me. So I'm curious what you think on an individual level, how do we kind of recognize our own vulnerability and know our risks and prepare without, I don't know, sort of triggering those fears of being vulnerability and without making sure we just shut down and and can't prepare because I'm too afraid to think of what might happen to me. I think that there's positive ways to spin it, right? And I think, you know, neighbor to neighbor is probably the best way to describe to describe it. There's there's a way to engage in a conversation around risk in my neighborhood that isn't necessarily going to make people feel like we're all going to be robbed tomorrow. Yeah. We can engage in a thoughtful conversation about the drainage system outside in my neighborhood with folks and let them know that it rains a lot here and the drainage system really needs to be modernized. And I I think holistically, we all need to invest in flood insurance because I think we're at a greater chance of having our houses flood and we probably want to build back faster. And saying things in in a positive way like that individually on a neighbor to neighbor basis, that's not necessarily terrifying. Right. Hopefully right. it's more constructive. Now, to your point, though, there are situations, frankly, I don't want to have to think about what I might walk into when I go to the mall these days. Right. And, and that's a very real fear and a very real threat that people have going going to concerts, going to the mall, going to these things. And you might see violence on some level. Right. I don't think it's about living in fear. I think that it's, again, understanding that First of all, it can happen anywhere now. So to say that it can't happen here, people have got to stop saying that. It's going to happen everywhere. Yes. You just need to have a better understanding of your surroundings and what you would do if. That is something that I know, I imagine as an emergency manager, this is something that you might just do on your own when you walk into a room and you know where the exits are. And it's something that I, as a survivor, do, and I know many other survivors do, I know where all the exits are. And I personally seat myself wherever I am, I need to be between two exits. So I need to have two ways to get out of wherever it is that I am. And I'm quite uncomfortable if I'm not able to do that. Mm -hmm. To share with my listeners, this is not something that I'm actually not walking around 
you know, feeling afraid <laughs> yeah. all the time. Right. That's not it. It's just, oh, I'm in this room. There's the exit. There's the exit. I can sit in these seats right here. It's just now a sort of checkbox that I do. And I have others, but that's a that's a good example. And it just feels like, okay, now I'm just aware of the world in a different way. Yeah, you're aware of really your risk and your vulnerability. And another one that I like to put out there for folks is I refuse to stay in a hotel room above the third floor. <sighs> yes. Because fire ladders typically can't reach higher. Some, some can, but in smaller jurisdictions, potentially they can. And so it's probably safer if you stay below the third floor. So it's things like that where it, it's, a, it's a very simple, it is sort of like a checkbox. And when you do it frequently enough, it's not consuming your mind. Right. Like, oh, right. there's the exit. Okay, I got that. <laughs> yeah, just check. Yep, exactly. I'm on the plane. The, the exit behind me is five seats back. The one in front of me is 12 seats forward. Mm-hmm. Got it. Mm-hmm. Let's go. Oh, I'm glad to know I'm not the only one. <laughs> signs of resilience. Those are signs of resilience. I love it. <laughs> well, what do you think is one of the most important actions or maybe policy that an organization can take to be really supportive of survivors? I want to go really big on this one, because instead of saying organizations, I really think the call to action right now is at least in, I'm going to go back to emergency management. We have got to start talking to our state legislatures Mm -hmm. and telling them that this is a priority Mm -hmm. and not just for emergency management, for your second and your third responders, the people that are out there dealing with the issues, the response, the recovery, the people your legislation, your laws, your policies must reflect the need to proactively provide resources and support to the people who may be impacted. And I'm not saying an impact means an injury. It's people that were around. It's people that experienced it, saw it, heard it, supported it. So I, I, I'm going to go one one bigger and say our organizations, we, we need to start big here with, with law. And I know that you you've done a lot with that. Um, and so I'm following in your footsteps and that's, that's really my next step. All right. Well, you are so speaking my language when you say that, when you talk about, let's take it up a notch, let's take it up a step. Cause we need to, I think you may have heard this. There's this book called Atomic Habits and the author talks about, you know, we don't perform to the level of our goals and our aspirations. We actually perform to the level of our habits. And I've heard people describe it as, we perform to the level of our policy or of our systems. So that fits, that dovetails nicely with what you and I are talking about, about the bigger picture, because I think in the moment of trauma is not the time to be thinking, what should we as a city or an organization be doing? You're just going to do what you already have set, what your system and your habits and your policies already say to do. So we need to get those updated, I guess. Absolutely, you do. You're right. Because when push comes to shove, they follow a checklist. Yeah. And I don't want to say it's the bare minimum, but sometimes it's the bare minimum. And in this particular instance, when you're dealing with with people's emotional strength, mental strength, uh, their mental health, you can't do the bare minimum anymore. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that. I'm on board. (laughs) So... Carrie, what is one question you wish I had asked you and how would you answer it? I guess I just answered it for myself because I I wanted to talk about the call to action. What can people do? How can they get involved? How can they be supportive? And regardless of your industry, 
regardless of where you are in the world, I think that there is a greater need for people to start talking about mental health, mm-hmm. talking about the experiences that they've gone through, big or small, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. I think the act of just talking about it reduces the stigma even ever so slightly. Yes. I think that is the first call to action is just please talk about it a little bit more. The second is what's next. And what's next is we've got to take the hill. We can't just stand back and say, I need my employer to put this in a policy somewhere. Sure. But that's the bare minimum now. So what are we going to do holistically as a jurisdiction, as a state, and as a country to make sure that everybody who needs support is receiving it automatically? Yeah. I like the word. Let's get that support, make it automatic. Well, as we're getting ready to wrap up, what would you tell your 18-year-old self about resiliency? I would probably tell myself the same thing that I would tell my 10-year-old daughter now, Okay, Okay. (laughs) which would be something along the lines of 18-year-old Carrie. You are strong. You're brilliant, you're kind, and you're a beautiful girl. You can do anything that you want to put your heart and work into. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Life is going to be so full of excitement and joy and love, but sprinkled in with some disappointment and strife. And it's okay. You have everything you need already within you to get through it. Just don't forget her. Don't lose her along the way. (laughs) And when you feel the push and the pull of life, hold on, lift your head high, put one foot in front of the other, try to stay as strong as you can. And remember, in the end, you have to love you for you. So don't change. Don't give up. Don't give in. Know that all the answers to whatever's happening will unfold when the time is right. And love will open every single door that you need it to open. So follow a path that's your own because you're you're already steadfast and you're resolved to do exactly what it is you want to do. Spread your wings and go. And I'll be here when you need me. And that's that's what I would say to myself, I think. Oh, Harry, that's beautiful. That is so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I got chills. Oh, you- thank you. <laughs> oh, God. So as we wrap up, how can our listeners reach you? And is there a way yet that they can find out more about Stronger Stories? Stronger Stories is almost officially on the, the web. <laughs> it's not on the interwebs yet, but if they Googled hashtag IAEM, stronger stories, one word, some things will come up. Um, However, in the meantime, until there's a formal webpage ready to go, they can find me on LinkedIn, Carrie Speranza. I am there. Send me a message. Happy to chat and talk all things mental health all day long. Excellent. We'll put that information in the show notes. And perhaps by the time this episode airs, uh, it will, Stronger Stories will be online and we can put the link for that in there too. I hope so. Fingers crossed. Definitely. Yes. Fingers crossed. Well, Carrie, thank you so much. This was such a wonderful conversation. And I think we could talk forever if I had my druthers. So thanks for your time this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening. I hope you got as much out of this conversation as I did. So if you'd like to learn more about me, Manya Chilinski, I work with organizations to help understand how to create environments where people can thrive after difficult life experiences. And I do this through talks and consulting. I'm a survivor of mass violence, and I use my experience to help leaders learn about resiliency, compassion, and trauma-sensitive leadership. 
to build strategies to enable teams to thrive and be engaged amidst difficulty and turmoil. If this is something you want to learn more about, visit my website, www.maniachilinski.com, or email me at manya at maniachilinski, or stop by my social media on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. I hope you got as much out of this conversation as I did. So if you'd like to learn more about me, Manya Chilinski, I work with organizations to help understand how to create environments where people can thrive after difficult life experiences. And I do this through talks and consulting. I'm a survivor of mass violence, and I use my experience to help leaders learn about resiliency, compassion, and trauma-sensitive leadership, to build strategies to enable teams to thrive and be engaged amidst difficulty and turmoil. If this is something you want to learn more about, visit my website, www.maniachilinski.com, or email me at manya at maniachilinski, or stop by my social media on LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks so much. Talk soon.